Hello and welcome to Rick Radio Community News Desk, episode 96. I'm Mick Hanley. A happy and healthy new year to you all. For the first couple of weeks of the new year, we are going to bring you the remainder of the Talk with Trinity series. Next week, we will broadcast Talk 6 when Professor Kieran Brady discusses Sean O'Casey's Dublin women. But this week, it is Talk number 5 with Dr. Jennifer Doyle, who talks about people and puzzles and introduction to tracing your family's history. And my day-to-day job is telling people's stories. It's finding out who you are and where you come from and all those interesting little bits of colour that make up your life or the lives of your ancestors. So this is just a rough outline of what I'm going to be talking about. Um, But before I start, who has a very common name? So, yeah. Well, my mother's name is O'Connor. Connor, Connor, Connor O'Connor. Dunk. Anything else? Casey. Casey? Yeah. Hmm? Yeah. Then no. Toomey. McDonald. Toomey. Murphy. Murphy. Walsh. McCarthy. McCarthy. Yeah. So think about it. How many other people share your name? So I, as I always tell my clients, you throw a stone, you're going to hit a doyle. There's hundreds of us. There's, there's millions of us around the world. So I grew up in North Dublin, very small peninsula hope. And how many Jennifer Doyles do you think there were in 2010? There was 28 Jennifer Doyles in Hope in in 2010. I learned because I went into the library and I forgot my card and they said, okay, which one are you? Pick yourself out from the list. So we are not all as unique as we might like to think we are. There are loads of people who share our names. As you can imagine, people in the past, they had good, strong Irish names. The men, Patrick, John, Joseph, The women, Mary, Bridget, Catherine. Permutations therein, and lots of nicknames. Round about about when Mary asked me to do this talk, um, I got a text message from my dad. And he said, it was just this random random message going, it's been 46 years since my father died. And my initial response was, who? Because he died before I was born. I knew absolutely nothing about this man. So he's my puzzle. And I thought since I'm here, he'd be a very good puzzle to talk to you through. So I'm going to talk you through the puzzle of my Doyle family history. Um, But first, what is genealogy? Genealogy, in a nutshell, is basically the study of your family history. It's open to everyone. We all have a family history, whether we know it or not, whether we want to know it or not. And to be honest, it's a really addictive hobby. You can sit down and you can literally spend two, three hours and all of a sudden you've got all this information about people that you didn't know before. And not only that, you end up start doing your friends' family history and your wives and then your uncles and you start doing everyone. All of a sudden you know everyone in your entire community. It's a really cool way just to learn more about where you live. Um, so, these are going to be the key documentary sources I'm going to talk about. There are two aspects to genealogy these days. One, your documentary sources. So they're your historical records. The second aspect is going to be uh, genealogy, ancestry DNA, which I'm going to talk to you about at the end. So within your documentary sources, these are going to be the things you are going to look look for. 
these are going to be your starting point, no matter who you are researching. So it's going to be your civil records. Those are your births, your marriages, and your deaths. They are created by the state. Then you're going to look for your census records. Um, I'm doing them in these, this order because civil records run right through to today. Ireland has no census records before 1901. Before 1864, you're going to be looking for your religious records. And then because of the fire of the Public Records Office, which I'll talk to you about in a minute, we have very few other records, so we're going to be looking for land and property records. The caveat there being the more urban an ancestor you have, the less likely you are to find land and property records in the 19th century. Because for the most part, none of our ancestors actually owned their property. And in urban areas like this, particularly as they were being developed, they're going to be living in tenements, probably on weekly leases. So that's why you see people moving more frequently than you do in the country. So going back to my grandfather, the man who died 46 years ago last July. His name was John Doyle. Very common name. Awful lot of John Doyles. And I, I've never even seen a photo of this man. Um, but what I do know, I did know his birthday. And I knew roughly that he had a mother named Elizabeth. So, oh, just where to get your civil records first. Um, Ireland has introduced all civil, all civil records in Ireland date from 1864, with the exception of Protestant marriages. So around 1845, they decided to copy what they did in England, which was civil registration, where civil registration became there in 1837. So in Ireland, they decided to try it in 1845, and they registered all non-Catholic marriages. So that's Presbyterians, Methodists, Church of Ireland, and Quakers. Then 1864 comes around, and it's all births, marriages, and deaths. There's rates of compliance vary. You have births and marriages, you're fined for those. There was a lower rate of compliance for death registration until later on. Can anyone think of why that might be? Why might you not register a death? You don't exactly that. You don't need to. You can see a need to register a birth, and you can see see a need to register a marriage. To be honest, if your husband dies and he's ninety years old and he died of bronchitis, unless he has an estate to inherit, why would you bother? Why are you going to spend the money when you, you know you might need to be able to feed yourself? So there's lower rates of compliance for deaths. However, the closer you get into the 20th century, there's a higher rates of compliance. Fun fact, of the executed in 1916, only one had a death certificate registered. James Connolly, and that was for insurance claim. Allegedly. The Irish government has done a fantastic job of digitizing these records. So on irishgenealogy.ie, you can get access to all the births and marriages and deaths up to certain periods. So it, it, you can't get access to the deaths between 1864 and 1870. For some reason, I believe they're coming. You can get deaths from 1870 through to about 1970. <coughs> you can get marriages up to about 19, I think we're up to about 1943. And theoretically, you can get births up to 1923 online. But realistically, we're only heading into about 1920, 21. They just haven't caught up yet because of COVID. So that's where you go for those. Every, every, everything else, you need to go to the General Registry Office in Werberg Street. 
they are only open, I believe, on a Tuesdays now, but you can email them and they have an unbelievably quick turnaround. I think I've had it down to 18 minutes was the quickest between me submitting a request and getting the certificate back, including me making a payment. Um, finding them, you need to use the indexes. So while you can search on Irish genealogy, it doesn't give you an index and it shows you, it just shows the list of certificates available. If you're trying to search by spelling variants or by an age, say if I'm looking for John Doyle died 1978, age 70-ish, that's not going to pop up on the indexes or on Irish genealogy. Um, you need to actually physically search the indexes. So there are indexes available online on Ancestry till 1958. Anything post-1958 will be in the reading room in Werbrook Street. They will search them for you for a fee as well if you don't want to make the trip in there. Um, okay. So, the other thing you need to know as well, your registration districts. These do roughly uh, uh, correspond to poor law unions as they were known back in the day. Um, obviously, some don't, but there's many different ones all over Ireland. And there are some areas where, you know, you might be in one registration district, but you register someone else because it's your nearest town. Um, for, du for Dublin, we have two main registration districts. Split by the Liffey, Dublin North, Dublin South. Then you go out further, it's wrapped down, and then you up north towards Balbriggan, you have Balrothery. So if you're researching Dublin ancestors, these are the two districts you're going to be researching in. And just as a point uh, on Irish genealogy, um, very often they actually have just conflated it into a Dublin registration district. Sometimes it's Dublin North, sometimes it's Dublin South, other times they didn't put it in as anything and it's just Dublin. So, back to my John Doyle. There were seven of them born in 1912. Or, yeah, seven born in 1912. That's actually a manageable number. I was expecting it to be a lot more. So I went through all seven until I figured out one who was born in January 1912 and whose mother was named Elizabeth. And he was actually born in Hollis Street, around the corner, but the family lived on Grand Canal Street, right up the top of this road. So I thought he'd be a good one for this because he's, he's very local. Um, when you're looking at this, what can this record tell you? Like, what's, What would be the key piece, key piece of information do you think you'd need to take away from this record? Mother, father, yeah. Her maiden name. So very often women are written out of history because once they marry, they lose their maiden name and then they become known by their, their husband's name. In order to get back a generation on her side, I need to know her maiden name. And that will also help me figure out any siblings that John had. Because what you can do is the indexes after 1913, they include mother's maiden name. So I can then go look, how many Doyle Byrne children are there? And actually there's more than one Doyle Byrne couple in this area at this time. But it helps me identify who I might be looking for. And then there's the address. So I know they live on Grand Canal Street. Theoretically, I can still throw that into Google and figure out what building they live in. And the other thing, his occupation. Occupations are really crucial because they help you identify people as opposed to others of their same name. Now, unfortunately, this guy was, my great-grandfather was just a general labourer. However, if I go to his marriage record, he's a labourer, but his father is a blacksmith. That's a much more skilled occupation. So 
with regards to this, what's the interesting things to take away from, a, from this? Yeah, bottle maker from the bottle factory. Nearly all of my dad's family worked in the bottle factory down in Memorinsen. So, there's two things. The firstly, they're Catholic, and they got married in Ringsend. So, you know church they attended. The reason, I'll talk about church records in a second, but very important to figure out what religion someone is, and it's very important to figure out where they might have attended. The other thing is the witnesses. When you are trying to figure out or puzzle out who someone is, you need to look at who they surround themselves with. <coughs> so who are their witnesses? You don't just ask anyone to sign your marriage register with you. It's usually a, a relative, a very close friend, a sister. Um, this is what we call someone's fan club. Your friends, your associates, your neighbours. Every one of us has a fan club. And these help us track people through time. So, for example, John, one of the witnesses is Anne Doyle. We can reason that John and Elizabeth may have met through Anne, who is the wife's witness. So the bottom witness is usually the wife's witness, the first witness is usually the husband's witness. And Anne was probably John's sister. The other thing, as well as the occupations to think of, is their father's name. When you're trying to get back between generations, you're looking for families that match what you have. If all I know that John Doyle married Elizabeth Byrne, how am I going to know which John Doyle out of the many other John Doyles? So he's, this is 1909, this is married, around the other, other John Doyles who were married, who were born in 1888. How am I going to know which one is my one? Well, I know in this case, I'm looking for a John Doyle, son of Andrew, and who lived in Howard Street in Ringsend. So at least these are my data points in time. And this is who I'm trying to get back for. So next on my list is going to be census records. In Ireland, we only have two complete surviving census records. We have 1901 and 1911. And I say mostly complete because there are enumerations missing from both of them. More from 1901 than from 1911. The 1926 census is currently being digitised by the National Archive and that's going to be really interesting because it's going to show the probably the loss of life and the missing from the Irish War of Independence and the Irish Civil War. So a lot of people who deaths might not have been registered but who are missing in between the two censuses, it's going to be really interesting. It's also going to show the decrease in the Church of Ireland. That's one of the big things I think a lot of people are waiting to see because after the foundation of the state, a lot of Church of Ireland left the country. Sorry, when is that going to be ready? Uh, they won't release it till 1920 till 2026 um, under Jira privacy law. Unfortunately, I think they are trying to get it earlier, but um, where you're going to find these is going to be on the National Archives.ie census.nationalarchives.ie. Um, you will have indexes. There's a index on on ancestry. The reason I like to use the index on ancestry to find people and then go to the National Archives website. The search function on the National Archives website is a bit clunky and it doesn't search name variations. So if you're looking for Joseph, you won't throw up someone called Joe. It'll only show you all the Josephs. 
Um, we do have some fragments of other census, and these are very much so loca location specific. So we have 1821, 1831, 41, and 51. Um, it really does depend. I think some of these are Armagh, there's a couple down in Cavan. Um, there's none for Dublin. There is the 1851 Dublin city census, but it only lists the head of the household. It doesn't list um, individuals. And then finally, with regards to census, we have the 1841 and 1851 census search forms. Does anyone know what these are? Have you heard of these? In 1908, they introduced the old age pension. In 1841 and 1851, there was no civil birth registration in Ireland. How do you prove you're old enough to get the old age pension? Mm -hmm. Census records hadn't been destroyed yet, so you wrote to the public records office and you asked them to pull the census that you were on based on what you remembered. So if you're a 70 year old woman, you're right, I know I was living in Ladytownland, whatever civil parish, my father's name was John, my mother's name was Mary, and I had three older sisters. And then the public records office would go, they'd send a clerk, and they'd go, right, yeah, we found this. While the censuses are destroyed, we have the census search forms. So they're a really, really useful source. And also, just by way, women tended to age themselves after between 1901 and 1911 because of the introduction of the civil pension. Civil, <laughs> so they could claim the pension. You see women doing it more than men. Um, probably because men work and women would not have had their own income. Civil, the old age pension was a, a way for them to get their own. So, back to my Doyles. So here we have John and Elizabeth and their first son Andrew. So this is taken two years after their marriage record. So they're married for two years and you can see here they have one child. And this is actually slightly unusual because this question was only supposed to be asked for, for women. So, for some reason, they put it, John filled it in for himself rather than filling it in for Elizabeth. Their first son is called Andrew, and he's one year. That's, so, another reason to point out children's names and the order they were born in. In Ireland, there was usually a very fixed naming pattern. For the most part, the first son was always named for his paternal grandfather. The second son was named for the, his, mater, his maternal grandfather actually didn't happen in this case because my grandfather was named John um, and her father was named Michael so don't know what happened there but for the most part it's a good rule of thumb to try follow. So this is uh, John Doyle born 1888 in 1911 and if you look he's a blacksmith so on the birth on his marriage record and his birth record of my grandfather in 1912 he's a labourer but when he wrote out the record himself he was a blacksmith and that's his signature down at the bottom. So that's the other thing about the cool thing about census, you can actually see you can see signatures. I, my I had a great aunt and they she's from Rings End and she was born in nineteen twenty three. She never believed that she had a sister named Sarah. Never believed it. She'd heard rumours but she never believed she had a sister named Sarah. When the nineteen eleven census came out, Sarah was on the nineteen eleven census about five months before she died. So she died, this little girl died with, you know, she, she was less than three, I think. She died of TB. But there was Sarah with her family on the 1911 census, a full 12 years before my great aunt was born. And she was the youngest of like 15 children. So, and what got her was the fact that her father had written it out and she could see Sarah's name written in her father's writing. 
and that was what made Sarah real for her. Mm -hmm. So, 1901, the last census I have my family in. So here's John, age 13, and then we've Andrew. What is interesting about this? What do you think I can use to go from here? Give you a clue. Where's Andrew from? Okay, the writing's really bad. Andrew is from County Curl. So that's another clue for me where, for me to go backwards. Where can I go? Um, the other thing I found really interesting was one daughter, Annie, probably the witness to the 1901, 1909 marriage. She's the only one in the house who can speak the Irish language. This is 1901. We're hitting right towards the end of the Gaelic revival and the beginning of nationalism, surrounding language in the state. So it's really interesting that you have this 14-year-old girl who, put, who her father puts down she can speak Irish. So it's just, it's, it's an interesting note, you know, you can go in, you can start figuring out what was going on in Ray's end at this time that she was learning Irish. But it's, it's interesting. Um, so what do I need to do next if I was to get back for this family, bearing in mind everything I've just said? What do you think the next thing I need to figure out how to do is? Go to Carlo. Go to Carlo. Before I go to Carlo, how do I learn more about Andrew? What do I need to know? Age might give us his birth. Yeah. He's born before civil registration. So we're looking for church records. We need to know what his wife's maiden name is because while he was born before the civil registration, he got married after civil registration. So his wife's marriage record, or his marriage record to his wife, theoretically will give us his father's name. So at this point, I'm going to talk about church records. Roman Catholic parishes, for the most part, usually only have baptisms and marriages. Some have burials. There's a whole big complicated reason for it, but for the just to bear in mind, you are very good, very rarely going to find a Roman Catholic burial record for the 19th century. Um, where you're going to find them is there's a whole slew of places. So ancestry have them. We have the same records that they have in the National Library of Ireland. So in the 1960s the National Library went on a microfilming spree and they went around all their Roman Catholic parishes in the country and they collected their registers and they microfilmed them. So we have them indexed um, and those indexes we've supplied back to the National Library. So you can find them on both Ancestry and the National Library website. In Irish genealogy has some Dublin Roman Catholic records and it has some Kerry Roman Catholic records. Now this is a crowdsourced project, so always look at the original registers. You don't want to rely on someone else's interpretation of handwriting. Um, Roots Ireland, same thing. Roots Ireland is a subscription-based service that has, uh, you basically search the entirety of Ireland, so I could plug in up to, well, it's up to about 1870, 1880-ish. Um, you can plug in all the information and it should find name variants and all this sort of thing. It's really, really handy. However, <coughs> one thing I will always say is use the transcriptions and then go look at the originals themselves because you never know what someone else has decided isn't important to go into a transcription. Always look at an image of the original if you can. And then local custody. There are some records that were not microfilmed by the NLI in the 1960s. Some parishes, I came across one where it literally said the priest was sick, so he didn't send us the registers. <laughs> um, 
there are also some parishes for which no records have survived. So if you think about it, Catholic emancipation in Ireland was until 1830. So there's fewer records before that date. Not all priests were as diligent. So some records just went by the wayside. They got left somewhere along the way. So you will find gaps in some, like Donegal, for example. For example, Donegal is a record black hole as is County Monaghan, but Donegal is a record black hole. There are very few rec Catholic records in Donegal before the 1870s. So it's actually very rare that you have a county where civil registration goes back before uh, the church registers, but there you go, Donegal. Um, and other denominations. So, Church of Ireland. There are, theoretically, because the Church of Ireland was the established church, of, it was an arm of government before 1872, you'd think that there would be more records. Because it was an arm of government, all those records had to be put in the public record office, and then in 1922, when it went on fire, a significant proportion of those records burned. So, Church of Ireland records really does depend on the parish. What you do have, a lot of them are kept in the representative church body library over in Churchtown. And it's actually kind of cool, sometimes you can open them and some of them still smell like fire. They're still, some of them are still damaged. Um, uh, your sources for them would be, Irish genealogy has a lot of Dublin Church of Ireland records. Um, and then Roots Ireland. Roots Ireland is brilliant for Presbyterian records. So if you have a Presbyterian ancestor, Roots Ireland is where I would start. Um, the National Archives of Ireland has a good collection of microfilm records and original records, and then the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland, Prony, but Belfast has the same. Most Presbyterian records are going to be up there. If anyone has Methodists um, ask me about those, they're a different kettle of fish altogether. And if, you're, if you have a Quaker ancestor, you've literally hit gold because Quaker records are the best thing ever. They go back right to the 17th century and they are so unbelievably detailed, it, it just makes you smile looking at them, and Quaker names are a joy to look at. Um, I there came across one, she who shall not be named Harris, or um, William Edmondson, who was known as the Hammer of Ireland, because he hammered Quakers into, he called one son trial, because he was a trial, and one daughter hindrance, because her birth hindered his preaching. So, yeah. Um, so just by way of an explanation of why Ireland is so difficult to do genealogical research in, this is the Public Records Office fire in 1922. So what happened was when they were besieging the four courts, some bright soul decided they were going to stick, uh, stock paraffin outside the door of the Public Records Office. They were going to store it there. And then when it was shelled, it went on fire. And that was the resulting explosion. So this is looking down the keys. So this is probably up near Houston Station. That's, you can see the four courts there. So imagine the size of that to, to be seen that far. It rained paper for days apparently. And you could just, it, a huge, huge loss of records. Um, there was an earlier fire in 1921 in the Customs House. That one was on purpose. Um, the Customs House fire was deliberate, this one is an accident, but between the two of them, Ireland has lost a significant amount of its historical record. Um, so, parishes. So the reason I was asking you where they got married, 
is because you need to know what parish to look in. So there, uh, there's even more Roman, there's even more Roman Catholic parishes than there are civil parishes, and there's even like you know, going back to the map I showed you of the registration districts, you think that's a lot? There are literally hundreds and hundreds of Roman Catholic parishes. These are just the ones in Dublin. So as you can see, you know, there's not going to be just one church in each area. So these are the parishes, and each church within that parish is going to have its own registers. And then what happened was they sewed them all together, or they got lost. A bit of both. Um, this here are all Dublin cities, so these are all the more urbanised areas. And these are all the parishes within Dublin city. So this sort of wall here is roughly where the city is. Um, so here we are in the parish of St Andrews, here. But look how close it is to Haddington Road, Sandy Mount. Uh, Riggs End is under Haddington Road. And then we have Rathmines and all of the sort of the inner city, inner city parishes. Um, each of these will have different start dates, uh, they'll, have different, um, they'll have different content. So some priests wrote a huge amount of detail, others would have written very little. Um, but the further back you go, chances are there's going to be less information in the records. And just by way of an aside, before about 18, before the famine, before about 1845, very few people actually got married in a church, the priest came to your house. It's after the famine, that's when you started getting married in churches. Um, you typically got married in the bride's household. I read a really, really good book um, by Maria Liddy on marriage practices in Ireland. That was one of my big takeaways that people didn't get married in church. Um, so, church records. Who knows Latin? I don't. And chances are the priest writing the record didn't know Latin either. But they made a good stab at it. So this is, I've jumped a few steps by the way, just for the sake of time. I've since discovered that Andrew Doyle's wife was named jo Jane Walsh or Joanna Walsh. This record was in Latin and they got married in Rath Mines in 1878. And Andrew has somehow, somehow become Andreas. Um, Joanna, uh, Joanna, she's fine, but her father, John, is Joannis. Um, this is a really key record, and the reason I've picked this over their civil marriage record, this priest in Rathmines put in both sets of parents in the marriage register. So I have Andrew Doyle, dead Kingstown, from Kingstown, now John Leary. Phileas Thomas A. Katerina Davis, so son of Thomas Doyle and Catherine Davis. Uh, A, so that's two. Joanna Walsh de Reeves Road. I have no idea where Reeves Road is. It's somewhere in Rathmines Parish, but as a road, it doesn't exist now. Philia, so you've got Phileas for the man, Philia for the woman. Philia, Philia, uh, Philia, Joannes and Anna Tobin. And then witnesses, testators, so people who are standing in testament of your marriage. We have Pats Walsh and Anne Reed. So this was crucial because one, Andrew Doyle, who's living in Ringsend in 1911, when he got married, or 1901, when he got married in 1878, he's living in Kingston. 
of a blacksmith living in Kingston who was born in Carlow. Um, and her, Joanna, lives on Reed Road, somewhere in Rathmines. So it's interesting to sort of think of where they might have met, like where does Dunleary and Rathmines intersect? It's interesting to think about it. But I thought I'd show you this one because it is in Latin, and that's the thing to remember is when you're searching, particularly if you're searching through the indexes, I might type in Andrew Tobin or Andrew Doyle. Andrew Doyle did not come up when I searched Andrew. This record did not come up when I searched for Andrew Doyle. It took me, by swings and roundabouts, I had to look for Doyle-Walsh marriages and start searching through until I found one that matched. Um, and then I verified it with DNA later on, as I'll get to. So that's that. Now I'm going to talk to you about land and property records quickly. How am I doing for time? Um, so you're going to have two primary land and, and record sources, or land and property sources. Um, the first one being Griffith's primary valuation of Ireland. So in and around the 1830s, 1840s, um, it was becoming very evident that the poor law system wasn't working. So what they decided to do, poor law was basically where they'd fund the workhouses and they'd look after the internet in your, in your community. In order to make it more equitable and to better fund it, they decided to introduce a, a new system of rates, taxes. And to do that, they had to value every holding in Ireland. So that's what Sir uh, Richard Griffith did. And this is probably the best census substitute we have for the 19th century because we have no census records. What we have is Griffith's valuation, which basically lists everyone who is a primary rate payer on a property. It's only the person responsible for paying rates. It tells you nothing else about it other than the property. But it's a good snapshot of Ireland between 1848 and 1860. <laughs> and then there are records building on that. So it's a, they're living records. So you can literally trace a whole it forward right through to the 1980s when rates were abolished. Going back earlier to that Dafferty Church of Ireland, we have the Tide Apartment books. So regardless of what religion he personally followed, everyone in Ireland had to pay a tithe to the Church of Ireland. And the tithe allotment books of the 1920s were basically their records of who owned what land at that time and what tithe you do. There are caveats. Um, in order to be included in Griffiths, you had to be resident for at least a year and you had to have a holding worth more than five shillings. So if you have a tiny little hatch cottage on the corner of a field that's worth a shilling, you aren't going to be in it. Um, the tide allotment really only did rural areas. It didn't take into account urban areas. And in Griffiths, if you, one thing you will see, usually in more urban areas, it'll literally just say tenants, where no one is actually resident long enough, but their landlord is not eligible to pay rates on their behalf. Um, and outside of Dublin, and I didn't learn this until I started doing genealogy, they have a thing called townlands. And a townland is the smallest geographic unit. So host townland, for example, only covers half a host, so a whole other ones, whole others. Um, you need to figure out, in order to find a family in Griffiths, you need to know what townland they're in. And very often, everything is written down phonetically, because you have people with a very strong Irish accent, maybe not speaking English, saying it to a, a civil servant who is probably more likely to be of English origin than the you know, local person. 
Um, townlands.ie helps you figure out what townlands are in a specific parish and then Loganum does the history behind the name and the variants that are found in different records throughout time. Both are really cool websites to play around with. So I've jumped backwards again. So if you look here, oh see where for example vacant but John Largan's eligible to pay for the tithe. This is Andrew Doyle's father, Thomas Doyle. Not gonna lie, when I put this up, I was going to use it as an example of how there are so many Thomas Doyles and I didn't know this was actually my Thomas Doyle. I went and double checked it last night, it is actually my Thomas Doyle. I thought he was gone by the time this was done. Um, but this is just a, look, a list of everyone who lived on the Clash, which is obviously an area of Staplestown Road in Carlotown. And you can see all the different names. It's right next to the railway. Um, here we have a house, forge, and a garden. So this Joseph Gorman is clearly a blacksmith. Um, these are the areas, so the acres, the roods, and the perches. Um, so that's a very small one, slightly bigger. And this column here is your total rateable value. So that's how much tax was paid per annum on that property. So Thomas Doyle had a house opposite a small garden and he paid £1.15 shillings in the 1850s on him. So that's actually an indication that he was probably doing fairly alright for himself in life. Um, but it, these are, this is how you sort of you find out who your neighbours lived around. Because very often what you find is you find people, particularly in, not so much in urban areas, but more in, in in um, more rural establishments, you will find like you'll have people of the same name in the townland, they're probably brothers where holdings have been split with each generation again. You'll find maybe a wife's name, and it'll just allows you to build a proof argument. And you can also then go for things like maps. Maps are my favorite thing ever because you see just the sheer size of holdings or the small of them, and if you can lay over a Google map you can actually see um, the, how the, the, the landscape is still the same today. So you can see where the houses were, uh, you can see sometimes where there's a rath still there or where a road has been put through. Um, if you ever get a chance, have a look at the maps for this area. You can see all the industry that used to be in this area, the chemical works, the blacksmiths, which is probably why Andrew Doyle moved here, the engineering works, everything. That, it, it's just it's amazing. So, I'll run through genetic genealogy. Uh, we have two types. So we have autosomal DNA and Y-DNA. I'll do Y-DNA first because it's only applicable to men. Women have an, two X chromosomes. A man has an X and a Y chromosome. A Y chromosome doesn't change with each generation. I always say it's like a man hands his son a piece of string. The son hands the grandson a piece of string. It's the same string but each time a little bit gets worn away. And that's how Y-DNA works. It can track a man's patrilineal line back hundreds and thousands of years. Really useful. Um, one company does this, it's called Family Tree DNA. It's quite expensive. And to be honest, it's not really useful for closer, 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 closer research, unless you're trying to prove paternity. Um, autosomal DNA, on the other hand, and that's what Ancestry does, is it's like a card shuffle. Your parents each have a full deck of cards. They shuffle and they each give half to you. They shuffle again and they give half, each give half to your sibling. 
So you're both getting cards from your parents, but you're not getting the same cards. It splits between each generation. So you get 50% of your DNA from each of your parents. You're only get 25% of your DNA from each grandparent. You only get 12.5% from each great-grandparent, 6.25 from each great-great-grandparent, then 3.25, and that's pretty much where you're at the, the cusp of usability. And it's really, really useful for cousin matching, as I'll talk about in a second. But it's also, the fun bit of it is the ethnicity estimates. Where are you from? Now these are, they're just that, they're estimates. What they're estimating is, based on your DNA, what populations are you most similar to? I'll show you my dad's in a second, but what they are is, if you have different sorts of, and say you might have, uh, you might think you're Spanish, is it showing up in your DNA? Or even go more local, you might think you're from Donegal, is it showing up in your DNA? Um, and I'll show you now how that breaks down. This is my dad. So this is the son of the man who was born up on Grand Canal Street. And his mother was from Ringsend, so very, very local to here. Uh, he's 77% Irish, 13% Welsh, 7% Scotland, 2% Sweden and Denmark, and 1% Orange. These are probably hangovers of very distant Norse invasion of Ireland, five or six hundred years, yeah. But name like Doyle, how could he not be a Viking? Um, Scotland, Scotland and Ireland, when you look at the algorithm, they show up quite a lot because there's huge amounts of migration between Scotland and Ireland. So our populations are genetically very similar. That doesn't mean that he is Scottish, and it, does, it just means that he has DNA that resembles people in Scotland, probably because he had ancestors way back when who went to Scotland. The Wales, I'm very sure that comes in through his great-grandmother, who was the daughter of bottle makers brought over from Bristol to open a bottle factory in the 1850s. So that, that's what they did. They brought over bottle makers and glass blowers from Bristol, and they went all around... Uh, they did it all around, like even up to St. Helens, they brought them from Bristol up to St. Helens, Bristol to Dublin. That's where I'm fairly sure that came in. Unfortunately, her name is Eliza Smith. <laughs> I can't find Eliza Smith anywhere. Um, but the rest of it, he's solidly Leinster and probably solidly Dublin. This one here, the south of the River Barrow, is this here. That genetic community covers Carlow. So we know my dad has from Carlo, or his Doyle line comes from Carlo, and it's born out in his DNA. The rest of him is Leinster. So it's just an estimate, but it can be really, really eerily accurate when you look at it. Now, the cousin matching. This is where the fun comes in. How did you get those figures? These? Yeah. This is from an ancestry DNA test. Oh, right, yeah. And yeah. um, when you take the test, it breaks it down for you. Uh, so, cousin matching. These are who you are genetically related to. Starting off with the close, so it lists everyone from the closest, and it goes down to the furthest. This is his first cousin on his maternal side, and it allows you to split between the two. So I know if I was to start researching start onto researching the Doyles more, I'm only looking for matches on the paternal side. 
this chap here is a Doyle. He was actually the son of my dad's uncle Andy, who was the one-year-old you saw in the 1911 census. Yeah, this guy here was the son of my dad's great my dad's great uncle, who was the oldest brother of the woman who didn't believe she had a sister, Sarah. So he would have remembered Sarah. He would have been 14 when she died. His grandfather. But you can see how the DNA is declining with each generation. And it's great taking a DNA test, but what you need to do is build your tree. Because it is useless taking a DNA test for, for genealogical research purposes, provided you're interested in the research. <coughs> what you want is you want to build a tree because you want to see who else matches you along those lines. So this person, for example, I have absolutely no way of knowing who they connect to, other than they're on my dad's paternal side. They put no information up, and that's fine. It's as private as you want to make it. But for the purposes of research, I, I, would, I, I did actually message them to find out who they are. You can message them through the system and just say, can you tell me who your grandparents are? I'm looking for my Doyles. Is there any stories you might have in your family? Because different stories are passed down through different lines. What you know might help someone else break down a brick wall in their family history. Um, so, just in summation, I'll give you 100 years of my Doyles. We have Thomas Doyle and Catherine Davis. They get married in Carlow Town in 1848. That's during the Irish famine. They stay there until 1860, when they move to Rathrum. So they're moving up. Thomas was a cooper, so he's probably moving with the brewing trade. He's building barrels. They stay there. They don't leave Rathrum. Andrew, and one of his at least one of his brothers, he continues on up into Dublin. He's a blacksmith, so he moves up to King's Kingstown. He moves to Dunleary. Then he moves into Rathmines. He marries in Rathmines, and he moves into Dublin city centre where John was born. Then John marries Elizabeth. They marry. They had my grandfather John up on the top of this road, and now I'm here talking to you today. So, <laughs> thank you. I was wondering whether Ancestry.com or any other source could indicate how many true dubs there are who have lived in Dublin, let's say, for eight generations, um, Or is it all country people migrating into Dublin? That's a very good question. That's a very good question. I would like to believe they can, because even though I have more than one Carla line, I like to consider myself a true dub. Um, it all depends on what the reference panels are, so we'd need to trace people back enough to confirm where they're from. And unfortunately, a lot of the records just don't allow us to. If the fire hadn't happened, maybe, but we can all say we're true dubs. I like to think I am anyway. <laughs> Anyone else? I'm interested in my father's records. He was from Cork, but he was very active in 1916 and 1921. And wherever I go to get information uh, on those lines, thank you. Bureau of Military History. Yeah. Uh, Bureau of Military History, particularly if your father would have got a pension or anything like that, that's no, I would definitely, still definitely, that would be my place to go because he might be mentioned in the records. Um, 
there wasn't enough. I don't think there was many records kept of internment. If there was, that would be in the National Archives in Kew, but I would start with the Bureau of Military History. Thank you. Um, I've already done the genealogy there, the cells, but I was overwhelmed with all the information. I was going with maybe one person, and all different things were coming in about that same person, different spelling of the name, different things. But just how do you kind of break it down so so you can um, look at what it, what to do? Um, work from, pick your data points. So I always say who, what, why, where, when, what do you know? Are, does the location match up? Right, so if we're looking for a John Doyle born on Gragonal Street, are there other Doyle families on Gragonal Street? With regards to spelling, take into account that before the introduction of compulsory education, people weren't that educated, and they might not may not have known how to spell their name. So I work I work around that. You need to know you. When you're trying to sort out what's your family and what's someone else's family, you literally—it's a often a way of going right. I write it down like, what do I know? Do I have them in the 1911 census? Yes. Is there another family? Right. What can I rule this family out? Did my father have a son called Andy? Yes. Okay, that rules out this family. And you're literally just chipping away to create. Thank you all too, Jenny. That's all for the community news desk this week. More from the Talk with Trinity series next week. My thanks to Adam and Ronald on sound and editing. From me, Mick, take care and have a great week.